The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus creator meetups, networking and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. This is Blue Moon. It's the original fan-made Manchester City podcast. Coming up, we've got news and views from Cities Week. It's your club and this is your show. Well, you know how when City lose right before the international break and you spend a fortnight stewing on the result because it's so long until they can put it right? Yeah, well, enjoy the World Cup, everyone. Still, at least it's only Liverpool on the first game back when we return. Nothing big there. Anyway, welcome to this week's Blue Moon podcast, the final proper one before the season pauses. On today's show, we'll try to work out what went wrong against Brentford and give you some positive vibes to take through to the return just before Christmas. We'll also be talking demolished grounds today as we hear from author David Proudlove, whose new book is about when football clubs leave their stadium. He worked on the redevelopment of Moss Side in the years after Main Road, so we'll hear about that. Plus, we'll take a look at some of City's final visits to other grounds as well. We can't put off the Brentford debrief any longer though, so let's get underway. I'm David Mooney and I'm joined by City fan Adam Monk. Hello. And City writer for the Manchester Evening News, Alex Brillerton. Hello. So, uh, yeah, not a, not a great way to uh, finish the, uh, the the first part of the season, was it, Alex? <laughs> yeah, not ideal. Um, didn't really see it coming, to be honest. I mean, I think we all know that Brentford are a, a really tricky team to play against and um, obviously they had a fantastic season last year um but yeah I, I don't I can't pretend I was expecting this kind of performance from City but yeah just gonna have to spend a long time stewing over it now as we um head into the World Cup but um I don't think it's panic stations is it but I'm sure we'll get into that yeah we will um Adam why I mean why do you think the performance was just so below par well, people have been using the World Cup as an excuse haven't they a lot in the sort of the day after the event um I'm not too sure how that how much that played a part. I think maybe it did collectively because what I think was quite bizarre about it and you don't usually see with City is it seemed to be 10 or 11 of the players who weren't given 100% as opposed to like 4 or 5. And usually on occasions where it's 4 or 5 who maybe aren't up to scratch, the other 6 will, will then bail us out. But it did seem to be very collective. Um, so maybe that, was, maybe that had a part to play. But also maybe Brentford, I think deserve a bit more credit than people have given them yeah I mean it's that obviously there was there was lots of things wrong with um with City's performance but I don't know I can't really think of many teams uh perhaps you know by like the obvious example like Liverpool or someone like that that um have come to the Etihad and have pressed so well but then have also been able to get back in numbers extremely quickly. Yeah, they both, they, they get... were both really aggressive in the press, but then mm. also really, really compact and 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 kind of in that low block setup, weren't they? It was like a, the best of both worlds from how City of of what opposition have done to City lately. Yeah, because usually you, you well, I guess most teams will come uh, and they'll sit deep, and that'll be that, and they'll it's almost like just laying the gauntlet down to City of you know come and try and break us down. Um, and we're not really going to attack you much, but we're just going to s- sort of stay around our own penalty area. Or you'll get a team like a Brighton, who obviously it didn't really work out too well for them because they lost 3-1. But 
um, they'll come and they'll they'll attack City and they'll press, but they won't be quite so compact defensively. And and yeah, but Brentford managed to do both as well as um, maintaining a sort of a, a real threat on the counter attack and and through transitions as well, which obviously City just couldn't deal with. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of credit does have to go to Brentford, but I think there were things from City's own performance that kind of helped Brentford a little bit, and things that you know. Obviously, the the beauty of hindsight is that we can look at it and think, oh, well, maybe Guardiola should have done this or this player should have done that. And I think there's a few things like that, but probably shouldn't take too much away from the fact that it, it was just a brilliant Brentford um, performance. Yeah. Adam, just want to tap into that um, kind of looking worried for the World Cup um, angle again, um, because I've, I've seen this a lot in the in kind of like the, the hours since the game. Um I just wonder how how accurate that actually is because I I, I find it difficult to think that um, I I know you hear all the time that players have in the back of their minds this or that, but when when the game's won all on ninety minutes and you know things that you're really pushing for that winner, I'm not convinced it's there. I'm not convinced. Do you know what I mean? Do you know, do you know what I mean? I, like the, the the moment where De Bruyne could chop down the Brentford player on the edge of the box, I'm not convinced he's going into that challenge thinking don't want to get hurt for the World Cup. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And to be honest, I think the Fulham performance and the Brentford performance were just completely contrasting in that sense. You know, the City players were down to 10 men against Fulham and they were giving everything in that second half, particularly De Bruyne, like you said, to just sort of turn it around, um, putting in 110%. And that's two weeks before they jet off to the World Cup. So what's one week difference going to make if your injuries, if your injury is going to rule you out of the competition? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's... It was so unexpected for me. I did think we'd, I thought we'd cruise past them and I maybe underestimated Brentford, but I just think like Cancelo's performance, for instance, he just wasn't, it just felt like all game he was just doing the same mechanical chopping side, crossing, lat lost across, regroup, rinse and repeat. And it was just sort of like he was exerting very little, he was taking very little risks. And it just felt like a lot of the players were sort of almost copying that, really. Yeah, um, just on the uh, the World Cup attitude, though, Alex. Uh, one player it, it might have affected is uh, Ivan Tony. Why do you think City couldn't handle him? <laughs> I mean, because I mean, there was the other thing was that City just seemed couldn't see they they couldn't seem to deal with Brentford's pace on the counter attack or their aerial threat. They, like the number of headers that City lost, I've never seen them lose that many headers. Yeah, it was um, it's one of those things that Guardiola before the game sort of predicted would happen, um, but still couldn't do anything about so he said that you know and he and he, and he I remember him saying this a lot last season ahead of the two games against Brentford um which City won but he was always saying that you know they're a great team in the air we're not going to be able to compete with you know set pieces and that kind of thing and obviously that proved the case again but then City weren't able to deal with the second balls either so if you're not if you're not going to win those aerial duels you have to make doubly sure you're going to win the knockdowns and not let sort of the flick-ons go to Brentford players and then let them sort of steam through. But that that is exactly what happened. Um, and I'm not too... In terms of like the aerial threat, I don't really see many reasons why City shouldn't. Because it, it's not like, you know, we're not talking about, say, Guardiola's Barcelona, where they had like a four foot five Javier Mascherano at centre-back. Like the City centre-backs are big blokes. Like they yeah, should, they should be good they in, should yeah. Be able, yeah. Um, you know, Amrit Laporte is... is I think I was just looking before at the stats out of interest. I think this season, I think he's got an aerial success rate of about 70-something percent. Um, interestingly, Manuel Akanji is right down in the 30%. Um, so perhaps 
that was maybe a, a poor selection on Guardiola's part. I don't know. But yeah, it, it, what was more weird for me was that they weren't able to sort of get on the second ball. Fair enough, you lose the header, but then you've got to be on it quickly, haven't you? And um, I'm just wondering if maybe having Bernardo Silva in midfield might have helped a bit with that. He's a bit more sort of, well, we all, we've all seen him in recent months sort of tracking back a lot and um, the way he sort of scurries around midfield. And when he's on the wing, he's kind of seems a bit, not able to do that because he's so far up the pitch. Um, I'm just wondering if that would have maybe helped try and hoover up those second balls a bit. But yeah, I think it was Brentford's attacking plan was was the sort of the long balls up, winning the knockdowns and then sort of quick transitions from there and, and City just couldn't cope. Yeah, well, uh, just because uh, Alex has said that, Adam, I'm going to bring forward a question that we that I was saving till the end of the show from from the listener questions. Uh, Simon on Twitter says, uh, all 10 points that City have dropped this season have had Gundogan in the number eight position and Bernardo moved out to the wing. Are we losing too much of Bernardo's influence when he's out wide? Yes. That's it, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Simple <laughs> um, as that. Yeah, I, I mean, he's just, he is the midfielder that we can move into the middle and he's just got the most dynamism, hasn't he? Uh, I don't want to take anything away from Gundogan, particularly because of the last day of last season. And we all know he's a phenomenal footballer. But um, I think now, maybe with Haaland up front and we're built on perhaps less refined football, there's maybe not as much need for Gundogan in that sense. Because um, we've already sacrificed a bit of control in losing Haaland, in having Haaland anyway. That putting Bernardo in there would make a lot of sense, I think, to put him back in the middle. But then the problem that we've got is we only really have one I suppose natural winger, you could say, in Mares. That's the first teamer. Like I still, I still don't see Grealish as a natural left winger. I'm not sure which Foden's best side is. Um, I think he's played well on the right a few times this season, and but obviously he's played left for most of the last three years. Um, so it's a bit of a conundrum, really, in terms of just like who fits where best. And obviously, I think we know that Bernardo's is down the middle. That's where you get the most out of him. But then it's who do you play in his absence on the right, really, to make the team the most effective? And I'm not sure where the answer lies there. So, I mean, is, is that is that an issue then with Mares's form, maybe? Because like this first part of the season has not been good for, for Mares. He's really not been able to find his feet. If he was playing better, would that give Guardiola more options then to, to be able to put him in for these sorts of games? It definitely would, but I think... In my opinion, the signs were there at the tail end of last season, or maybe the second half of last season, that Mahrez's abilities were just starting to wane a bit. I'm not sure if he's 32 or 31 at the moment, um, but the fact that we gave him a three-year deal, to me, is a little bit baffling. I think he's losing a lot of his physical attributes, which you need to to be a winger in a Guardiola team. And the way I look at it really now is like, it's almost like we've gone... From, from both extremes moving forward. like I think when we were at our peak five years ago, we used to have Sterling and Sane hugging the touchline, stretching the opposition, and they were unplayable when they were on it. But then perhaps in the middle, we had Aguero and Jesus, who were both very good, but maybe not of the calibre that Haaland currently is now. And now we've got Haaland, who's possibly the best number nine we've had of the Guardiola era. But then out wide, that's now where we've sort of got our attacking issues, and it's a little bit stale. And no one's really sure what the answer is. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit frustrating in that aspect. But I suppose, you know, hypothetically, if Mares was playing well or better, it would solve a lot of Guardiola's problems. But the truth is he isn't. And I'm not sure, I personally, I'm not sure he will now. I think we've probably seen the best of Mares in a City shirt. And I'm not sure that's his fault either. I think he's been value for money over the whole of his career here. Yeah. 
Um, just then back on the on the team selection, Alex. Um, I think ahead of the game, a lot of people were quite happy to see uh, Phil Foden back in from the start. He's not been in Premier League games lately. Um, obviously, Haaland was uh, was back in and uh, and back fit. It it felt like when the team sheet came out, it was one of those where I looked at it and went, "Well, I'm happy with that. That's a that's a good City team." And then the performance for the whole ninety minutes was just a a, a complete disconnect from that. Yeah, it was it was a bit weird, wasn't it? Because I think that the team, obviously people were happy just to see Haaland and Foden back um, just because they want to see him play in every game, basically. But I think when you're looking at how City were expecting Brentford to sort of defend, you know, with the getting people back, but also going man-to-man quite a lot of the time. I think, you know, obviously starting Foden, uh, the players like Foden, Gundogan, making those sort of late runs into the box, um, Haaland as well, they kind of all suited that kind of defense. Um, so, I mean, I was kind of happy with, with, uh, with that team selection, but just sort of linking into what Adam was just saying, I think that, I don't know, I just now get in the sense, and obviously this is from having seen 14 games. So I'm not saying that, oh, why has Guardiola done this like the last few games? Cause it, sometimes it takes these trends sort of take time to emerge, but it, it kind of feels a bit like when Haaland's going to start, you kind of need, I think you need Bernardo in midfield just to to claw back a little bit of that control that you do lose um, a little bit of when Haaland plays. And I'd, I'd disagree with Adam on the, the point that I think I think City are at their best when Haaland's up front, but when you have Grealish on the left wing, um, because I think you just need that person to stay out on the sort of the left flank and um, bring a little bit of control as well. Because obviously Grealish, you know, we'd all like to see and be a bit more direct sometimes and be scoring more goals. Um, but I think he is just brilliant as well at um, kind of making the right decisions and not not giving the ball away too too easily. And, and that was one of the problems I think City had. Even players that are usually not sloppy on the ball um, were, were just really sloppy. And then when you start trying to force balls towards Haaland, that's when you know it comes back at you 10 times faster. Um, so I just think going forward, I know, Pep's going to have to make these sort of adjustments based on who's playing, uh, who, who City are playing and, you know, who's fit and whatnot. But I just think City look better, sort of more balanced now if they're going to start Haaland up front with Grealish in, on one of the wing, well, the left wing and then Bernardo back in midfield. And yeah, that kind of does mean that Gundogan might not start too much, but, you know, his biggest strength is those sort of late runs into the box like we saw last season and the season before. But now that they've got Haaland, they don't necessarily need that as much as if, like, when they were playing with a false nine. So, um, in a roundabout answer to your question, I think the the team selection did look quite good. But now thinking about it, I I just do think City are better when Grealish is on the wing and Foden is, uh, not Foden, Bernardo is is back in uh, number eight position. Yeah, just uh, just on the Grealish uh, thing, Adam. Uh, very quickly, City have uh, dropped points in four games this season: Newcastle, Villa, Liverpool, and and now Brentford. Um, Grealish hasn't played a minute in any of those games. Yeah, maybe he does offer us a lot more control, but I think um, ultimately, for me as a fan who wants to be entertained on a very superficial and perhaps stupid level, I would like to see a bit more output. And, you know, I think the word with Grealish for me would be like responsibility that he takes upon himself to do something in the game. Um, there is no doubt that he's great at, you know, dictate not dictating tempo, but, you know, maintaining his control, keeping the ball, not taking too many risks and um, and losing the ball. But I think that's what he was he was so renowned for. And I refuse to believe that 
you know, the club would have spent a hundred million on someone who was deemed such a maverick at their old club, um, to then sort of strip him of all of that. That's yeah. the only issue I sort of have of him. Unmaverick yeah, basically, just like it's like it's like maybe not we've clipped his wings, but he's clipped his own wings in a way by maybe overthinking things or just uh, or just like doing the bare minimum in a Guardiola system. But you know the stats are there. He does keep the ball; that's undoubtable. Um, and yeah, perhaps it does help Haaland. But what I'd like to know is when Grealish has played on the left, has Bernardo been in the middle, or has has Gundogan been in the middle? I'll be honest, I haven't looked that up, so uh, yeah. I don't know. Sorry about that. Because <laughs> that, that would be interesting to know, really. It'd be interesting to know when he's out wide, what combination does he sort of play around, if you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, to sort of maybe find that out. But yeah, I think it's we're still, even though we're only, what are we, 14, 15 games in now, and we've got the World Cup, I still think we're in a bit of a teething period in terms of like figuring out what our best system is to sort of fit around Haaland. It's bit, there's been quite a lot of like chopping and changing, I think, in personnel in the first few months of the season. And uh, I'd like to think after the World Cup, we'll have we'll have a sort of, um, you know, a, a line-up a little bit more nailed down. And perhaps, yeah, like you said, the likes of Mares and people like that, perhaps coming into form will help with that. I think Alvarez is certainly growing into the team as well in the last few weeks, which is, is a big positive for me. The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands, and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus, creator meetups, networking, and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. Ad-free episodes are available on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Just looking back at the at the game then, uh, Alex, um, when you look at, I, I rewatched the highlights uh, ahead, of the, ahead of recording this today. Um, when you look at the chances in the game, they're all Brentford's. Why, why couldn't City stop that from happening? The, the, I mean, basically Edison kept them in that game for so long. Yeah, um, I think you know when you when you're having a performance where so many individuals are making sort of mistakes and their passing isn't really up at the level it should be, it's just always going to bring more pressure on you when you keep giving the ball away. And you know, even Edison, I think at one point he played a goal kick straight out um, in the first half. And you know, when you're under, you know, no one's City regularly sort of end seasons with like you know, if not the best defensive record in the league, one of the best. Um, but we can't kid ourselves and say that's because they're a brilliant defensive team. A lot of that is because they keep the ball so well and generally don't have to do that much defending. Um, and I'm I'd, not saying I'd that, argue that's been a good defensive team, though. <laughs> in, okay, yeah, let me if you, if, you keep, if you keep hold of the ball, the opposition aren't scoring, are they? <laughs> but in a sense that it's not like City are a team uh, that... You know, they've not got sort of like four Maldinis in defence or... yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that they're bad defenders or like they're, they're all very good defenders, but I think when in games where no, no one's really quite on it and they bring the pressure on themselves, they can be found out. Um, they're not like a necessarily an amazing backs against the wall defense. Um, and I think they do miss the extra help uh, of the, just like Bernardo brings, like when he's in the middle dropping in next to Rodri. Um, 
so I think maybe that was that was part of it. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just a hard one. I think maybe they're not they're not. I guess you, that used to teams coming to the Etihad, and you know every time Brentford came, uh, attacked, they had at least four players kind of in the attack. That's unless you're a Liverpool or like a Real Madrid or someone. That's that's pretty unheard of for for a team playing at the Etihad to attack in such numbers and at at such pace. So I don't know if maybe I can't imagine City's players were underestimating Brentford. You know we know Guardiola's not the kind of manager that's going to let let his players go into a game thinking it's going to be easy. Um, I think maybe I don't know maybe they're just not used to that kind of challenge on a regular basis and you know if you go into that kind of game and you're not at your top level and there's no doubt too many players were below par um, you are going to struggle so yeah, I think it's trouble. just a combination yeah um, Adam I've mentioned Edison there as well there were there were question marks over him for the first goal it was it was the sort of goal that I'd have let in um, but uh, he saved certainly kept City in uh, in, in this game there's there's a there's a kind of this attitude around Edison that he doesn't make enough saves um and i think i think brentford showcased some of what he can do on a good day didn't it yeah absolutely and i think you know one of the one of the arguments you can make is that he realizes he's got stone competition now in ortega i think he was brilliant in midweek uh before the brentford game and uh yeah I, i've always rated edison i think it's one of them where if you face so few shots and, you know, we've seen what Edison can be like on a football pitch. It is sometimes like he gets bored, um, particularly when we're winning by big margins, that perhaps uh, that would seep into his goalkeeping abilities as well when he does face a few shots. There's no doubt that, you know, in a shot-stopping sense, he's he's not been at his best for perhaps the last year or so. But um, I think what he does bring to the team, for me, will always outweigh what he can do between the sticks anyway. And considering such a possession-heavy side, uh, we dominate teams so much in that regard and face so few shots usually that um, the ends justify the means with having him in. But yeah, he had a good game yesterday. I thought he was probably our man of the match. Um, despite a couple of dodgy kicks, I thought, yeah, he did make a few good stops. But what I also just would like to say about the defence then is I think we're perhaps starting to see... Uh, or perhaps starting because I think it's fair to say Cancelo is very much a left back now in the team and yeah. I think Pep thinks that's where his best position is uh, it's only really like we have I know Rico Lewis is 17 and young but it is really only like we have one proper right back in the team right now and he's not been fit or played much this season and it felt to me Brentford really targeted Stones' side and I don't think he looked comfortable all game uh, you know, he, you know, we know he, he doesn't offer much going forward on that right-hand flank, and that's fair enough because he's a centre-half. But I think, like, Henry bombing on past him and Tony sort of dropping deep, physically dominating him and Akanji and then linking up play with runners in behind and Burmo Wissa, I think it just felt like we... He always seemed, particularly in that first half, to be hugging Stones and Akanji's side of the defence and just playing balls down his channel, and that's where they were getting in a lot. Um, and I think... I don't want to say it's cause for concern because, you know, it's only one game, but I think it's somewhere City will certainly look in the market, perhaps in January or the summer, just to get in, you know, a proper backup right back. Yeah, they've. Uh, it's another season's gone by and they've not addressed the fullback issues. It's, uh, it's, it's you know, repeat in yeah, ad infinitum, isn't it? Day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just finally, then on uh, the setup, Alex, um, could Guardiola or, or should he have made a substitution earlier? Because we know we know about Guardiola when he's happy with the rhythm in a game, he doesn't, he, he won't change it. City were, I'm not going to say on top because they were finding it difficult to to keep Brentford back, but they had they had enough of the ball to to be almost creating chances. Why didn't he look at bringing someone like Grealish or Alvarez on a lot earlier than he did? Um. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it was basically because he was fairly happy with... Um, well, obviously not happy given the, how the game was going, but happy-ish with, with City's attacking rhythm anyway. And they were sort of... Towards the end, they were building up a bit of steam. Um, and I think there was a few chances where, you know, it just kind of typified Haaland's kind of off day where he was mistiming his jumps. And there was that one after Alvarez came on where he squared it. And then Haaland just fell over, didn't he? Um, as he was sort of looking to take a shot first time, um, he just slipped. Um, so, I, But I, City were creating chances. Um, perhaps, I don't know, because they were rushing a bit as well, weren't they? There was a yeah. few times where I think Laporte had a stupid shot from the edge of the area when he should have just recycled the play. Um, maybe Rodri had one as well, I think. Um, but I must admit, when I was watching, I, I didn't think oh, this is just not working at all. We definitely need to change something. Kind of felt like, you know, if we keep plugging away the way that they are. Yes, maybe I think I think Alvarez probably was the player I was thinking should have come on and I think he should have come on a bit earlier than he did. But I wasn't sort of thinking, you know, there has been tech games this season where Guardiola's made a few changes, um, but I wasn't thinking sort of after an hour, oh, we need to make three, two or three changes here. I thought, I, I did kind of feel that the goal would come. Um Obviously, he didn't. Uh, Guardiola said after the game that pretty much that that he was he kind of felt that with the players that were on the pitch, you know, De Bruyne has never De Bruyne didn't have a good game. Bernardo wasn't particularly good either. But you not if you need a goal, they're the kind of guys you just leave on anyway um, because they can't just create something from nothing. Obviously, you're not going to take Haaland off, and he had a pretty sort of dismal performance as well. So um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure there was too many changes I would have made, but maybe the Alvarez one a little bit earlier. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think it was, there wasn't, an, I don't know, it sounds, there was an awful lot wrong with City's performance, but in terms of how they were attacking in the last sort of 20 minutes, I didn't think there was that much wrong apart from players taking stupid shots when they could have kept the pressure on, basically. So I think that's why. Problem was, like I think Pep said it in his post-match press conference, Brentford was so compact and narrow that they were just forcing us out wide. Um, but then I think the problem really was you've got a six-foot-four striker in there and the quality of the crosses going in were just consistently so poor throughout the game. A lot of crosses hitting the first man, a lot floating over everyone and going out for goal kicks. Um, and it was just like that rinsed and repeated throughout the whole game for me, despite the fact that we largely controlled the ball. Uh, and, you know, we did take a lot of um, stupid shots in that sense as well. I'd have perhaps shifted Kev maybe more centrally to get him in those areas where he can take a pop at the keeper. Uh, maybe that would have led to something. But um, I think overall we saw against, I think what he tried to do in the last few minutes and was uh, was go for the win and play the similar system to what he did against when we scored four against Crystal Palace, I think it was, where he sort of had Haaland and Alvarez up top and Foden was sort of operating almost as a wing back. Yeah. Um, that's what he tried to replicate, um, which made some sense. Um, it gives us an extra attacking number. Um, but yeah, it just, it just, it just wasn't to be on the day. And, you know, you are right. Haaland did have his biggest off day, I think so far, which is fair enough. Yeah. I um, just want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, the officiating and VAR because uh, I know uh, I know a lot of people listening to this will be uh, still pretty annoyed about some of the decisions that went on. Um, but I want to do it, Alex, through the, the kind of prism of uh, that handball incident in the first half where uh, basically City wanted a penalty. Um, I want to I want to kind of be clear when we start about this. I don't think City lost that game because of a few bad decisions here and there, nor I, I don't think like this decision specifically cost City the game. Um 
but I do think it, it raises an interesting kind of issue with the way that we are using the VAR at the moment, uh, because the way the incident played out, okay, the, the, the referee or the uh, assistant gave a free kick, um, possibly erring on the side of caution, kind of along the lines of, if this is inside the box, the VAR can correct it. If it's not, we don't have to give a penalty and overturn it. So we'll give a free kick and, uh, and, uh, and kind of see what happens then. But... The VAR can only give a penalty if there's conclusive evidence on the video that the incident happened inside the box. And we know that on the line counts as inside the box. But when you look at the video, there are a couple of angles that make it look like it's in the box. There are a couple of angles where it doesn't look like it's in the box at all. And so for that exact reason, the on-field decision stands. It's kind of like umpire's call in, in the cricket. Mm. But the, that that kind of raises the issue that you, you can't have an incident that is both a penalty and not a penalty. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I I, I... Yeah, I mean to be honest, I, I I don't think I saw the did they show the the VAR sort of views, but any on the replays anyway. To me, it looked fairly conclusively that like it was on the line, so should have been a penalty. So I'm not really sure why they thought why they decided there wasn't conclusive evidence because it looked pretty clear to what I saw. Um, unless, as you say, there were there were other angles that kind of cast some doubt, and then. Fair enough. If if you then think it's not conclusive, then yeah. But it is a sort of a, I guess it's a cliche, isn't it? But it seems to be a bit of a grey area um, because, as you say, had the on-field decision been a penalty, it and they'd, they'd, yeah. ar- they'd arrived at the same conclusion that there isn't conclusive evidence to suggest the referee was wrong or the linesman was wrong, then the penalty would have stood and they wouldn't have overturned it uh, to a free kick. So it is just a weird sort of in between no man's land, but. I don't know. I just from the replays that I saw anyway, I thought it was fairly obvious that it was on the line. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure why. It, I, I, just, I can't imagine any replays that would have made it look like it wasn't because it just looked really clear to me. But as you say, City, it, it wouldn't really have. If City had won from that, they wouldn't have deserved it because they were they were poor. But um, it to me, it was just a bit bit strange, and I thought it should have been a penalty. Yeah, and then there's there's the other incidents in the box, Adam. I mean, one of them happened right before Foden scored, so um, it, like it, that, that wouldn't have mattered because they they played the advantage, they got the goal. Uh, but there was one, I think, where Laporte or Stones was uh, was just effectively clotheslined in the box, yeah. and, and and it wasn't given. And then there was the, there was an incident in the second half where. Um, De Bruyne took the corner. There was a load of wrestling, and the referee just decided to have a word with them and, and make them retake the corner. And it's just like, just why why are you not penalising the decision once the ball's in play? Yeah, um, I'm just sick of it to be honest. Like that was the Laporte one was clear as day. Um, yeah, like you said, it was a it was a clothesline, a choke slam, whatever you want to call it. It was it was a, it was clear and obvious. That's the word that they use, clear and obvious. Um, and that's what it was. Um, I didn't see too much in the second half in terms of like when the players were all sort of tussling. I'm not sure if there was a foul in there. I've not seen any replays from that. But um, in terms of the, you know, looking back at events, you know, when players appeal for fouls in that VAR room, if they see something as clear as day as what happened to Laporte, then in my eyes, they've got to pull it back. Yeah. Um, overall, it was just a shocking refereeing performance. I really think it was. Uh, and... You know, you're right, you can't use it as an excuse for, for us not really turning up collectively as a team and getting the win. Um, but it was one of those days where such a poor refereeing performance wasn't 
needed we could have done with it <laughs> with yeah. the level we <laughs> could were playing yeah. you know yeah exactly um but to be honest like i think it's not just a city problem now it's a league wide problem every player every team uh, every fan of every team has sort of touched on the inconsistencies that's where being thrown about um in VAR, where they're not even really sure what their all their own rule book rule book is. Um, I think it, I think it's difficult though because I mean I I, I understand the the, the kind of uh, the problem with the inconsistencies because a lot of the laws are subjective and as soon as you have to you have to kind of interpret them, you you end up in a situation where two different people can look at the same incident and come to two different conclusions, and so you'll never get consistency over that. And I I, I just wonder if part of the problem with VAR is that it was sold as it will solve all of these problems when actually it was it, it maybe should have been we won't make any absolute howlers anymore do you know what i mean yeah um no i think that's absolutely fair enough um i think the longer it's gone on i've become more of a proponent for scrapping it to be honest um i think it's just taken a lot out of the fan experience now um and it, again it's a league wide problem it's changed the game hasn't it yeah it's changed the game um and it's just becoming a little bit tedious and disheartening in a way as a football fan um, to constantly have to go through it. I just want to kind of finish this first part of the show, uh, Alex, by looking at uh, City's position in the in the table going into the break. They're now five points off the top uh, after 14 games. And I know a lot of people were a little bit anxious because um, it's now you know a long time till they can put it right. The, you know they, they had the chance to be uh, just two points off the top. Um Weirdly, they've got exactly the same record at this point in the season after 14 games as they did last season. One ten, drawn two, uh, lost two. Uh, last season, though, they were only one point off the top of the table at this stage. Uh, the season before, they were five points off the top. Uh, they'd won seven, drawn five, uh, lost two, um, and uh, obviously went on to win the league in, in both of the last two seasons. Um, season before that, when Liverpool won the league, they were 11 points off the top at this stage, but weren't kind of not that far behind the points tally on 29 points. Uh, and the two seasons that they won the league uh, under Guardiola before, before that, they were top of the table at this stage as well, uh, 38 and 40 points. Um, how are you feeling about about where City are at at the moment for this season and, and kind of, I guess, the chase of Arsenal? They've got to play Arsenal twice, um, but uh, but but in terms of chasing them at the moment, knowing that that now we, we've got to wait to, to kind of see where we're all at when we come back. Yeah, it's it's not ideal, um, but I think it is just too early really to, to be worrying too much about it. You know, there's still... Uh, I'm going to have to do my mental maths here. Uh, 24 games left. Um, so, you know, well over half of the season still to play. Um, and we, do, we do think, we feel it's like the halfway point, doesn't it? But it's not, it's far yeah, from it. Yeah, it's probably closer to, to sort of the third, mate, third mark. I don't know. I'm not very good at maths, but anyway. Um, yeah, it's it's probably just, as you say, it's the exact same record as last season. It's just that, you know, there's a remarkably consistent Arsenal team at the top of of the table and and as you say City and Arsenal haven't met yet um I think there's one one of those could be a potential title decider because it's the it's going to be in like April I think isn't it um so and the, oh, then God, there's still the rearranged yeah there's the rearranged <laughs> fixture as well to, to slot in somewhere um but yeah it's 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 just kind of hard to sort of gauge really but yeah it would have been nice to have gone in two points behind but Five points isn't the end of the world. They've 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 um, overcome that kind of margin before. Um, even not even you know later stages in the season. I think with City, you just got to remember all the way back in 2011, 2012. There, what what was it? Eight points behind with four games to go. You know, it's just 
if you can do that, they can do anything. And Liverpool were, what was it, 14 points behind last season and they got it down to one. So it's, it's at this point, after only 14 games, it's um, it's definitely not something to be too concerned about. If it was to grow in the sort of first few games back from the World Cup, I think that's when you do start to worry a bit. But I think right now, yes, it would have been nice to have been breathing down Arsenal's neck, but five points is by no means a, an insurmountable uh, kind Tally, of gap. Yeah. And yeah, so I think it's, it's yeah, not ideal, but also not the end of the world. Yeah, Adam, they are there or thereabouts, aren't they? It's not, it's, it's been a good first half, first part of the season. Yeah, you only have to look at the, I think in terms of a title race, you only have to look at the sample size we've been given over the last five years or perhaps 10. You know, when we're in title races, we do tend to win them and we've won four in five. So we know how to win a title in a yeah. Guardiola team. Um, and also, I think what will come into play after the World Cup is Arsenal's team just simply isn't, it just hasn't got the depth in my eyes to be a sustained title challenging team. Um, and I don't think that's me being ignorant or anything. I just think I'm looking at it fairly objectively. You know, you look at Liverpool the Jurgen Klopp teams we've come up against. Dave, maybe not going forward because he consistently played Salamane Firmino, but certainly throughout the team as you go further back, they had players that they could chop and change in where I think Arsenal, they only really have their starting eleven that they know is their best starting eleven, and they know can control games and play the attractive football that's, being, that's going on at the moment. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, when injuries come into play, they'll naturally start to drop points. And then also there's a psychological element as well. You know, this that Arsenal-Arteta team, they haven't been there and done it. Um, and I mean, I don't usually agree with a lot of what he says, but Gary Neville has sort of been saying it and people have been calling him bitter. But I think he's kind of right in the sense that, like, you know, Arsenal, they were quite fallible towards the end of last season. And they, you know quote-unquote, bottled the top four when they went away to Tottenham and things like that. I think when push comes to shove and it gets to the business end of the season, I think I still think we'll see them fall away a little bit and drop points. And I still expect us to win it by eight to ten points. Yeah. Arsenal might be there or thereabouts at the end of the season, but it's they've kind of you've got to you've got to you've got to earn the right to be there, haven't you? And that's that's I guess what they're doing this season in uh, in many ways. They've got to, they've got to get over that hurdle. You see stats pop up all the time about clubs and players, and you want to know that exact thing about City. There's an answer. StatCity.co.uk Want to find out all of the players who played alongside club legends like David Silva, Sergio Aguero or Vincent Company? Or maybe you'd like to know which team found it hardest to score past Joe Hart. You can find out City's record in every competition, at every stadium, and under every manager. Just go to statcity.co.uk and browse away. That's statcity.co.uk. This is the Blue Moon Podcast, and we're very sorry about that. Right, well, at uh, at the end of this season, City will have been at the Etihad for 20 years. That's a quarter of the time that they were at Main Road, and that's one of the grounds that features in author David Proudlove's new book, When the Circus Leaves Town. It's about what happens when football clubs up sticks and leave. I've been speaking to him about the role he played in redeveloping the Main Road site in Moss Side when City made their way to East Manchester in 2003. I inherited the, the, the project uh, and the actual... The redevelopment of the ground was underway when I took it on, so obviously it's uh, it's it's a how it, it became a, a a new housing estate. 
Um, and the agency I work for, they, they were involved in something called the, the Housing Market Renewal Pathfinder Initiative, which looked at, 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 at Moss Side as a whole and, and, and what its needs and challenges were. Uh, and obviously with um, the, the proposed move to, to East Manchester, um, they, you know, they viewed Main Road as a, a potential uh, development opportunity. Uh, obviously, money had, had got to be raised to allow uh, City to, to move on. Uh, this was before, obviously, um, the, the, the big money came into the club. Uh, and so, you know, something was put together. I mean, it, the, the, the really good thing about it was, though, that the money that was raised went into the overall regeneration programme. You know, just small things happened as well. You know, a lot of stuff that was taken out of the ground, old seats and turnstiles and things like that. There was an auction. And we raised about £100,000, which went into grassroots community projects in Moss Side. So, um, you know, I, the, the agency I work for was, was heavily involved in that. And I've sort of managed the, the investment from the government side that, that, that went into Main Road. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, a lot of time has passed now since City have, uh, have moved on from Moss Side. Um, have you have you been back? Have you seen what it's like there now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've been back. Um, I mean, it's quite interesting for me. I mean, it was um, it was it was last last summer, oh, uh, and um, it was the first time I've been there since the um, the scheme had complete. So. I was I was looking forward to seeing how because obviously it will have matured a little bit over the years and I was interested to see you know, just how things had, had turned out and uh, you know one of the nicest parts for me um, there's a central green space that was created and kids patently play football on there <laughs> so you know it was that that was nice to see because you know you new housing estates. That sort of thing tends to be frowned upon, you know, letting the kids get a ball out and, you know, uh, but kids playing football at Main Road. Yeah, it's a bit of a, you know, bit bit of poetry there, I think. Yeah, and there's the there's the memorial as well, isn't there, to uh, to Stan Gibson right on. Uh, I think it's on the spot of the centre spot, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, instead, I went, uh, you know, took. I, I remember that being put down, and um, you know, it, it it's it's funny. I mean. Um, it, obviously, it's still there. Uh, that's a great thing. Um, at Huddersfield, um, there was a, a plaque put down that um, marked the centre spot of Leeds Road, and that that constantly gets nicked. <laughs> so um, it was it was great to see that the, the Stan Gibson Memorial is still there. <laughs> yeah, I um, I did an interview ahead of. Uh, I mean, this this is a, a complete different subject now for for where City are and where City were when they left Main Road. But I did an interview ahead of the Champions League final a couple of years ago. Um, where we still kind of COVID measures were still in place, and so we couldn't meet inside. Um, and the guy who was doing the interview um, said, "Can can we meet in Platt Fields?" And because it was a stone's throw away from Main Road, I had a I had a wander down, and I just felt I, I had the real kind of sense of sadness that the area that Main Road had gone from the area. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I get that. I just the same thing um, with I'm, I'm a Stoke City supporter and. Um, it it, um, it it took uh, a long time for the redevelopment of the old Victoria ground to come forward. I mean, it went, it, a couple of years ago, 
um, it was the back end of 2020. So we were sort of, COVID measures were still in place, but you could still get around. I thought, I'm, I'll go and have a look at the, the, the new estate that was being built there because it was, it was not far off completion. Uh, well, the first phase of it anyway. Uh, and I felt, you know, similar myself going to, going down there, you know, just looking at sort of landmarks that are still there, you know, the old Victoria Hotel and just thinking, well, I used to walk down there, uh, the old steps, the old um, booth and end uh, are still there uh, next, to, next to the school. Uh, and I, I remember standing there, you know, the, I, I you know, couldn't tell you how many times I walked up those steps uh, and I stood there, all I could hear in the distance was traffic from the A500. <laughs> and, you know, just think, you know, back, you know, 25 more years ago, you know, there's literally, you know, nine, eight to 9,000 people stood on the booth and end when it was full. And, yeah, it was it was a strange feeling. Um, I mean, that was, that was where I, you know, that's where I fell in love with football, you know. That's um, where I went with my dad. Uh, and, you know, to, to, you know, for it not to be there, even though, you know, let's face it, I've got used to it. It's 20, it's been gone, you know, we've gone, been, been gone from there 25 years. Um, it was still a strange feeling. Yeah. Um, when you when you think about Main Road as a ground, um it's it's kind of we don't see that ilk of ground anymore, do we? The the kind of hodgepodge four sides of a ground. No, no. I mean, it's you know proper, you know what you call a you know, proper football ground. Um, I mean, stadiums. I mean, I think you've got a difference. Yeah, you know, you've got grounds and you've got stadiums. To me, a ground is, as you just said, it's it's something that's put together and evolves over time. Uh, the new efforts are obviously designed as one whole um and you know i I suppose you can argue all day long about it and you know these designs and you know efficiency of design obviously the new approach are probably more efficient than you know the old approach but um you know these older places you know there's some of them that are still around and you know they they have their own character uh, and you know that that makes you know that helps to make the match day experience. Um, some of the newer places, you know, um, particularly the the ones that were you know built in the uh, sort of the the nineties into the early two thousands. Um, you know, it, it was they hadn't got much learning material, I guess. Um, and the point I make in the the, the the closing section of the book is. You know, there's there's grounds that there's there's still clubs planning to move now, uh, and obviously they've got a generation of sort of new stadium from which to learn, um, and you know who knows we 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 might get back to a position where, you know, designers take a decision to design four separate sides of a ground rather than a bowl or you know whatever we we've been getting you know since uh, since the Taylor report yeah and uh, of course you know city i mentioned the champions league final before city wouldn't be where they are now without uh, without the investment that they had from uh, Sheikh Mansour and the Abu Dhabi United group um do you think moving away from main road was was one of the key ingredients to that yeah absolutely um i'm 
you know, convinced that, you know, if 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 City had remained, I mean, they got what sixteen acre site in 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 Main Road at Main Road. Um, I'm I'm convinced that you know they wouldn't have attracted that level of investment. I mean, over at um, at Eastlands, you know, there'd been heavy investment in in infrastructure and whatnot in the area because of the Commonwealth Games. Um, a you know a state of the art you know, all-seater stadium, you know, plenty of potential to expand uh, training and, and other facilities uh, for the club. And it's, you know, you get you, you go there now and it is, it, it's hard not to be impressed. I was there last summer and it's incredible. It, it's, it's like a, a whole urban neighbourhood in its own right. Um, and, you know, it's well connected to the city centre as well, to the metro. So, you know, yeah, I, I think that was crucial to attracting the investment that city that city got. Yeah, I know. I mean, the, the other the other kind of crucial cog in in city moving to the stadium was, I mean, it was Manchester's Olympic bid and and uh, then latterly the Commonwealth Games bid as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the a lot happened uh, in East East Manchester um, over you know probably a period of 20 years and as you say um you know they 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 bid to host the olympics didn't get that but you know they kept the momentum going into into the commonwealth games bid which was successful and you know it's been that that's been the catalyst to change don't get me wrong i mean there's still challenges in east manchester of course um but um you know from a physical perspective the the areas can you know it's it's transformed um i mean 30 years ago that part of the city was was beyond belief in terms of dereliction and post-industrial decline and now as i say it's like a, a new uh a new quarter of the city this is the blue moon podcast Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was David Proudlove speaking to me about his new book, When the Circus Leaves Town. Uh, you can find it in all good bookshops and all the usual places. Now, uh, Main Road is obviously uh, a part of that. There's plenty of other, uh, other grounds in there. Um, I, I'm just I'm interested uh, for for you two very quickly before we we kind of dive into the into the next bit because you're you're both of uh, the generation of fan that um, I, I wonder Alex when you when you listen to, to to kind of fans like me hark on about what Main Road was like um, do you sit there and go all right Grandad thanks for that do you know what I mean like like it's 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 a big part of the club's history but it's it's easy to forget that we've been at the Etihad for twenty years now. Yeah, no, not at all, not at all, David. Um, <laughs> I, uh, no, I would have loved to have um, have gone to games there, and I think I, I first started going to City maybe the the first year at the at the, the City of Manchester Stadium. So even if I'd you know been a few years earlier, I still would have been a kid and probably not really appreciated Main Road. So really, I, I would have liked to have gone, but at an age where you know sort of teens or twenties or whatever. But um, yeah, quite a sort of idio sort of idiosyncratic kind of stadium really it's it was all sort of hodgepodge and bits connected on and stands that didn't really match up and that kind of thing and it's um it's kind of a maybe a football romantics kind of 
stadium to, yeah. to tick off. But um, alas, the, the Etihad's not bad, you know. It's well, good facilities, I, isn't it? I was going to say this, Adam. Um, like People like me always say, yeah, but the, the atmosphere at Main Road um, was w- w- was fantastic. And there's two things on that. One, I'm looking through blue-tinted specs. And, uh, and two... Like Alex is right. Through the nineties, the atmosphere at Main Road got very, very toxic when City were not good. Um, and then when you you kind of look at the atmosphere now inside inside the Etihad, um, it, like it's it's it feels like home. It feels like uh, a, a football club lives there these days. And when you when when City first moved there, you could make the argument that the atmosphere wasn't great. Um, what do you make of of kind of the match day? I, I hate this phrase, but like the match day experience inside the Etihad and and, and the atmosphere. Because you take like the Brentford game or the Fulham game, for instance, the fans were right up for those games. Yeah, well, I actually. I did go to Main Road, first of all, like when I was probably two or three. Um, But unfortunately, my dad, and I'll never forgive him for this, he can't even remember who we played. So like, I don't know what my first game actually was. (laughs) It was a a team that played in red. I remember it absolutely pissing it down. Uh, I remember wearing a poncho, and I remember eating a big bag of Smarties with those like big orange ones in it. That's all the memory I've got of it. And um, I wasn't very fond of it, so I think I've always been accustomed to... Uh, the lavish luxury facilities that the SEO's got to provide. I don't think the Kipaps is quite for me. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think overall the match day experience now, um, you know, I think for a few of the older heads who enjoyed the days at Main Road, maybe it's a bit too like kid orientated now uh, outside the ground and stuff. But, you know, that's the way that modern football is going in general. I think you're going to see that widespread across the Premier League, you know. Um, Clubs now are built on trying to garner as big an audience as possible. And I think City now are sort of gearing towards, you know, the tourist sort of commercial fan that will come and will spend a lot of money in the club shop when they visit on a one-off occasion. Um, I think that's the way that, well, I know it is anyway from working there. That's the way that the club's gearing up in the future, which... uh, I don't know. I mean, I know that's not really the question you asked, but it's just sort of it feeds into the match day experience, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's what's it's what's altered it a lot. But in terms of the atmosphere, I think obviously if you if you're a team managed by Pep Guardiola and you're on the up and you're winning trophies and your fan base is growing, then naturally your atmosphere is going to grow with that. And I think away fans will say it as well. I think that's a good testament to how good our ground is and our facilities. I think a lot of away fans, despite the sort of empty had jives that we get um, beaten with, I think generally speaking, away fans that I've spoken to and fans of like clubs that have travelled up and down the country, they always have the Etihad quite ranked quite high up in terms of facilities, atmosphere, um, you know, general match day experience, and you know, overall, it is a really nice ground, and we're going to continue to expand it. Um, so yeah, I think now 20 years, we've created history here as well, which I think is an important aspect. I think when we first moved, it felt kind of like a Commonwealth Games ground. You know, it seemed to look different when we first joined 20 years ago. We've created memories here, got our own history now in this ground. And um, it has sort of, particularly in the last five years under Guardiola, I think it's sort of taken that, it's sort of taken shape and has become has become home. The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus creator meetups, networking and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. 
You can listen to the show ad-free by joining our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Well, uh, sticking with that theme, we're now going on our travels. Dan Burke has been looking at how it's ended for City on some of their final visits to stadiums that now no longer exist. There's a long list of grounds that Manchester City have played their final game at, so let's set some rules for this feature to begin with. We know that football didn't begin in the Premier League era, but most of the podcast's interview archive takes place in that time, so we're only focusing on the more recent games. That said, we found it hard to find material from parts of the 90s, including City's final trips to Middlesbrough's Ayrson Park, Bolton's Burnden Park and Stoke's Victoria Ground. So we start at a stadium where City played twice and drew twice. Feetums in Darlington. I remember Paul Dickhoff scoring a late equaliser at Feetums to take it to that second game. And um, considering the state of our pitch at Feetums at the time, which was, it, it, it had been better served as uh, for growing potatoes really, but we, we we played some some good football under David Hodgson. We had some experience in there alongside some some real good young players and, um, and it was a real good test for us uh, for where we were at that time. That's former Darlington goalkeeper and now pundit David Priest. He was in goal for City's one-all draw there in the FA Cup second round in 1998 when Paul Dickov prevented an upset with a late volley. Later in that season, during the playoff semi-finals, it was a very similar situation. Again, Paul Dickov scored a late equaliser after a mix-up between Gerard Vikins and Nicky Weaver gifted Wigan the lead. That was the final ever goal at Springfield Park. Gerard didn't have to thank me or apologise because he was outstanding that season um, and it was a really uncharacteristic mistake from him you know and obviously we, we got back in it we're probably unlucky not to win the game It didn't look like City would even get to the playoffs earlier that season though Right before Christmas they lost at York on their final visit to Bootham Crescent Here's Jonathan Smith and David Mooney talking about that period on a recent Patreon bonus show There is a bit of gallows humour about it all but then there's a sense of realisation that right we're halfway through the season and where are they going? They were 12th at this point. So, so yeah. again, they're, 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 it's game number 22 and they're 10 places off the second automatic promotion spot. They're only just kind of on, on the first page of CFAX. Yeah. Throughout various points in the season, there was a bit of a feeling of, oh, this, this is fun, this, you know. But there were points in the season where you thought, wait a second, this might not be one season. So when that York City game came round... Like you say, it was on the back of a defeat and three draws, and then another defeat. You know, York City. Goodness me. It was during their travels down the Football League that City played their final games at various stadiums, like Reading's Elm Park, Oxford's Manor Ground, and Brentford's Griffin Park. And when they got back to the Premier League, they went to Southampton's The Dell and Leicester's Filbert Street for the last times too. Here's former Leicester goalkeeper Tim Flowers discussing the two daft goals he let in that day. I remember Paolo Wanchop at Filbert Street back-heeling one from about six shots. He's facing away from the goal and he's back-heeled it and, and beat me down in the bottom corner. I can't remember the Sean Goater one. Listen, that many goals went past me. It's hard to remember them all, do you know what I mean? But it, listen, Sean, Sean could score off all parts of his body. I can't remember the one off his back, but I certainly remember Wanchop beating me with a back heel at Filbert Street, yeah. That game was also memorable for a strange ending. Alfie Harlan recently watched the footage back with his son for a video on City TV. I thought the game was over, so I gave the shirt to the crowd. But we had to, I had to get the shirt back because I gave it no, away. Please. <laughs> he was only going to book one shot. I thought the, uh, the game was over. Oh. <laughs> 
City were relegated that season, but they came back up again the following year. During that Kevin Keegan promotion, they went to Coventry's Highfield Road for the final time, as well as Rotherham's Millmore. When back in the Premier League, City's final ever visit to Arsenal's Highbury was memorable for one really weird incident. Here's John Motson's commentary from Match of the Day. Oh, penalty again! Penalty again! Jordan on Bergkamp! Therese, who's already scored one, now faces David James again. What's he done? Well, he pretended to take it and then didn't seem to take it. And the referee's given a free kick the other way. Robert Pires tried to pass a penalty to Thierry Henry but failed spectacularly. City captain Sylvain Distant told the BBC afterwards that he wasn't impressed. I felt like it was a bit of a little bit disrespectful for for, for us, I didn't, I didn't like it at all, no. By this point, Stuart Pearce was City's manager, and it was during his reign that a couple of embarrassing League Cup exits soured the club's final visits to Doncaster's Bellevue in 2005 and Chesterfield's Saltergate in 2006. Chesterfield came from behind to win 2-1, while Doncaster knocked City out on penalties after it finished 1-1. Nader Manua was wrongly sent off at Doncaster 2. I think we might have been winning the game at the time, and uh, I think a cross came into me, and I touched a... Uh, I took a very standard heavy touch towards the goalkeeper <laughs> and then I slid in to uh, try and take the shot and then pulled my leg away and I was just devastated and then I think it went for a goal kick or something I was devastated because I thought oh, I can't believe I just missed that and then I turned round and the rest got a red card and I was I was very I was I didn't know what was going on I didn't I didn't even see an incident Thankfully, that was rescinded, rescinded shortly after because seeing the replays, it was exactly as I, as I thought it was. It was almost a decade after that until City went to a stadium for the final time. It was in the closing stages of Manuel Pellegrini's tenure as boss as they twice came from behind to draw 2 all with West Ham at Upton Park in 2016. City was still in the title race and that point, as happy as Pellegrini was with it, didn't really help. First, I agree that it was a very good game, especially for the fans because they took teams play to win the game with some attractive players, with creative players. So I think that it uh, was a, a good draw. But uh, if you cannot win the game, I think it's important not to lose it. And we scored the second goal and we finished with that option of Kuhn to win it. After that, there's only one more time that City have played at a ground that's now been demolished. It was Pep Guardiola's first ever loss at the club as well. After 10 wins and a draw from his first 11 games, he took his side to Tottenham and White Hart Lane, where they lost 2-0. We play against today one team, so it's the same training last, I think, two or three years. The last season it was until the end fighting for the win the Premier League. And of course it was difficult because uh, we had the problems to, to find the guys where we want to find it and, and control our game. And the second ball, they, they will lose a lot of balls in the position with social dangers and they were on a step in front of us uh, today. Since the beginning of the Premier League era, City have played their final matches at 20 different stadiums. The only two we didn't mention so far are Colchester's Leia Road, where City won 1-0 in what is their only ever game there, and Cardiff's Ninian Park, where they suffered a shock FA Cup defeat in January 1994. However, out of all the former stadiums that City have played at in the last 30 years, it will surely always be Main Road that holds the best memories for the fans. And, in typical City fashion, they lost their final match there as well. Hello, this is Jason Manford and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please give it a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts.
That was Dan Burke looking at uh, some of City's final visits to old stadiums. Uh, now, a little bit of housekeeping before we finish with uh, a listener question or two. Um, this week's Patreon bonus show, the City versus West Ham Heaven and Hell episode, uh, that'll be the final one until the domestic football returns just before Christmas. As a result, Patreon backers uh, will not be charged for December. So that means we'll make up the difference with the uh, missing shows from the end of November at the end of December for you. Basically, two of uh, December's episodes will be free. That also means if you're thinking of signing up you can try before you buy in December uh, you can sign up now and cancel any time before the 1st of January to avoid being charged and you can have a listen to the archive of bonus shows to see the sort of things that we do as well um, let's squeeze in uh, a quick question from Ben on the emails who says have referees been told to allow time wasting this year I understand that the so-called lesser teams will try and use up a few valuable minutes but it's getting ridiculous when teams are coming to the Etihad wasting time from minute one and the ref allows it please don't think this is a dig at Brentford they fully deserve the result but when Tony kicks the ball away twice in front of him and the ref does nothing, is this setting the tone for teams to get away with it? Um, Adam, we're just talking about the atmosphere there as well. Uh, I, I, I guess uh, time wasting is one of the things that really winds fans up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's a, I'd go as far as saying it is a tactic that teams employ now. I think, I don't know what game it was, uh, but I believe it was a United game recently where there was a stat that like the ball was only in play for like 56 minutes or something like that and at the end of the day from a fan perspective it's not value for money um and then you know I'd I'd be in favor really if it could be implemented in the long run in football um of deploying a sort of stop clock system where if the ball goes out the clock stops when it goes back in play the clock starts and then that would you know figure the conundrum of injury time and how many minutes are actually played but teams are definitely unquestionably using it and utilizing it to sort of kill time particularly when they're in a winning or drawing position at a ground like ours where we so often win and score so many goals um it sort of makes teams even more inclined to play that way um so it's really frustrating and i would like it to be cracked down on teams unquestionably get away with it you know brentford did as well as they played um, and I do remember in the second half, like Tony just kick him on into the billboards towards the away fans uh, when he had no reason to. And for me, that should be a booking. You know, you kick the ball away, you get booked. That's all. That's what the rule was um, from a free kick position. So, yeah, uh, I I want it to end, but I'm not really sure. I'm I'm powerless to help it happen it's down to the referees at the end of the day and I'd like to see a bit of change yeah my only my only uh, kind of um other side to this Alex is uh, I mean first off against Brentford there were 10 minutes of, of added time okay a lot of it was down to Laporte's uh, injury but uh, there, there were 10 minutes of, of added time he did add he did add time on for uh, for the time wasting uh, and the second thing is I mean City can City themselves can stop teams time wasting by playing better and scoring can't they yeah um I don't think time wasting is anything that new, to be honest. It's, um, I mean, yeah, obviously since City have, you know, Guardiola's come in and City have become this incredible team, teams are going to come and, and try and waste a bit of time. And I don't know, I think it is frustrating. And Is, and it, I think is it getting worse, do you think? I don't personally think it's getting worse, but then it would be interesting, you know, if anyone's got some, got a spare week or so, just to go through every single game under the Guardiola era and just count how much time wasting there was. Um, I don't have time for that, but uh, it will be yeah, quite I interesting. Can't, I, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't personally. I don't. I never really. I, I don't feel that it has got worse. So, but maybe it has. But at the same time, I think you know, there's such a. It's frustrating from from a as a city fan, but I kind of think you know, if that's a way that 
some of the sort of teams with far smaller budgets and who can't bring in these incredible players, if that's a way that they have to sort of, not really within the rules, but by bending the rules, if they can try and level the playing field a little bit, then I feel like they're within their rights to to do it. And then it's it's up to the referees to to punish them for that. And, you know, it's... I don't think we should really necessarily always criticize the teams for doing it. You know, it's yeah, it's not it's not the football people are paying to see, but at the end of the day, teams have got to try and get a result at City and it's hard enough as it is. So yeah. I can understand it. Um but I don't personally think it's been getting worse, really. Um so it's, what, yeah. it's what Adam says though, isn't it? Referees could stop it if they if they really want to. Oh yeah. To. Yeah, I think some do, some clearly don't. You know, you get some games where there's three minutes of injury time and there's been six substitutions lots of time wasting like a few goals and then there's hardly any injury time so I think that has always been something that's been quite inconsistent um, within the sort of group of Premier League referees and officials but yeah I think they probably could do more definitely yeah yeah, Adam. Football's been ninety minutes for so long. Uh, if if they if they announced that next season the games were going to be an hour long, but would be a stop clock, uh, how would you react? Yeah, I honestly wouldn't be too bothered because the stats show ball's not in play. The ball's rarely in play for over an hour, particularly in the Premier League this season. So you know you want to go watch a game, uh, watch the ball be kicked around the pitch and the ball be kicked into the net. That happens for about an hour of the game. So really, you're just getting half an hour of your time back on the whole on the <laughs> surface of things, you know. But, um, you know, the proper way to time waste is to go to Old Trafford and keep it in the corner and take the piss out of the opposition by <laughs> passing it around them and nutmegging them and things like that. That's how I like to see it done. <laughs> yeah, perfect way to, uh, to to end us for the uh, for the break. Uh, that's it for this week's Blue Moon Podcast. Thank you very much to my guests, Adam Monk. You're welcome. Thank you. And to Alex Brotherton. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, later in the week, we're going to have a special bonus Blue Moon podcast that's looking at all the City players that are going to the World Cup. Join me again for that, and we'll be back after the break. See you then. That was the Blue Moon podcast. Please give the show a rating and a review where you can. And don't forget, you can listen without the ads by signing up to our Patreon. You'll also get an extra episode each Monday. Here's a clip of this week's. I watched that goal back and Musampa lost the ball twice in the build-up to that goal. <laughs> he loses it, West Ham have an attack, City win it back, he gets the ball and then he loses it again. It's like, what the hell are you doing? And yeah, I think you're right about it on unraveling for pace after that because we we had one win and seven defeats in our last eight games after that, which was a a real precursor for the for the following season, which you know everyone remembers with with uh, with with no fondness whatsoever, yeah. do they? Yeah, uh, James, you th- this was the year you made the final, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, so. this is uh, part of the historic run. Yeah, it was yeah. good. So, uh, so what what are your memories of uh, of, of going to to Eastlands that night? I mean. <laughs> I mean, I, I came very close to picking this as my heaven because I think it was our first win at Easterns and going there desperate to see West Ham and at least an FA Cup semi-final, let alone a final, thinking, oh, you know, this is this is going to be tough for us. We're probably not going to probably not going to get there, but, you know, let's see what we can do. And um, we, we managed to do it relatively comfortably in the end, although another late goal did make it a bit nail-biting at the end. <laughs> but, yeah, it was it, just looking back, I mean, we had a really, really good squad then. Pardew was, was building a, a really good squad, having just been promoted, and Dean Ashton was the, was the main difference. You can listen to more of that at patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. And join us again next time for another episode.
The biggest international festival for the business of podcasting is back. The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus creator meetups, networking and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com. <laughs> 